Hey guys, welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's co-host is Kurt Hohan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kurt is a SF sniper buddy of mine. It's perfect to be, well, not so perfect, but good <laughs> to have him on the podcast to talk about sniper slash long gun stuff is what we call this podcast, right? Yes. There's so much stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, so, you know, the takeaway from this episode is really to get an idea what the modern day sniper and special operations has really gone through as far as evolution and also give you guys some tips on what you can do whether it's your long gun your hunting rifle training training etc you know the best tips that we can give you guys as takeaways so you could have something to take away to be better prepared all right guys so starting off modern U.S. sniper history. We've actually talked about it. We've actually recorded this podcast <laughs> like 10 times. Um, we, we we apologize for the last episode. We did film or we did record a PTSD episode, which had some solid content from the feedback that we got, but the audio recording sucked. Yeah. But we chose to keep it just based on the content. We had to replicate, replicate the effort because it was a genuine effort from the get-go and suffer in silence (laughs) so we've actually transitioned to my iphone (laughs) and which is a better recorder than technological upgrade (laughs) yeah compared to my high speed microphone and computer so let's start out with some q a kirk because you know last episode or like the last three episodes that recorded we talked about your history and i think a lot of people would be interested they've they've heard a lot about me and my background but they'd be interested to know one, how you got into special operations and most importantly, especially for this episode, how you got to, to be a sniper. I joined the army in 1998. Uh, I was assigned to an infantry unit at Fort Bragg. I would later go on to serve in F company 51st, which was an infantry company assigned to the 525 MI brigade, which was actually a long range surveillance unit. And I would do my first combat deployment, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. On that deployment, uh, I was exposed to working with special operations several times and just kind of made the decision at that point that that's the direction I wanted to take my career. And so when I returned home from that trip in 2004, I immediately put in a special forces assessment and selection packet. It was accepted. Uh, I would go through SFAS uh, later that year in 2004, successfully complete that, or, you know, I was selected to continue training, you know, moving throughout the, what they call the SFQC or the Special Forces Qualification Course. And I would actually graduate that in December of 2005. And then I would be assigned to 3rd Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg. My evolution as far as, um, you know, ultimately, you know, I retired as a sniper in 3rd Special Forces Group, but that process basically looked like spending several years on, it was actually a mountaineering detachment, uh, believe it or not. And we were doing specialized training for all kinds of stuff, recovery, rescue. um, That was a specialty of the team. And then obviously the core tasks of the detachment were just like every other team. In 2008, uh, I returned from Afghanistan. 
and was actually uh, reached out to by Mike and another personal friend of ours that unfortunately later on in our careers would pass away in combat. But uh, they reached out to me and said, hey, there's an opportunity for you to come to the SIF, which is the Commanders and Extremis Force. And um, up to that point in my career, it, it was something that I, I had been thinking about transitioning to. And so ultimately uh, made the decision to go, obviously had to get some OKs from, from uh, some Sergeant Majors to make that move, uh, but ultimately got there, I think at the end of 2008, uh, beginning of 2009. All right, so that's the lead up to where we started operating together and doing stuff together. What, you know, what was your influence in being a sniper? You know, I get asked on direct messages a lot, they're like, hey, you know, I wanna get into the craft of being a sniper. I know it was something that was kind of like ingrained in me, maybe starting with reading books about snipers in Vietnam, but it's something that I always thought about as far as the end state of what I wanted to do in special operations. What was your leading influence in that? Yeah, I mean, so for me, it was having a reconnaissance background in the Army. So, you know, like I talked about, I spent time in 18th Airborne Corps Long Range Surveillance Company. Um, I was on a team called Phantom 3-1. We, you know, obviously reconnaissance was our specialty there. Um, a lot like when I got to the company, you know, uh, a lot of the sniping today, you know, that people talk about, a large part of that mission is doing reconnaissance. And so it seemed like, uh, you know, when you guys reached out to me that I was a natural fit for the job and, um, you know, ultimately thought about that, like the idea of doing recce and the long gun piece. So, you know, that's that was basically when I made the decision that, that that's what I wanted to do. Did your dad have any influence in kind of like what you wanted to do? Did he say, hey, you need to be a sniper because that's like the best or? No, I mean, ultimately, you know, with my grandfather being a World War II vet and my father is a Vietnam vet, um, those guys were two huge influences on me or I looked up to my grandfather a lot. He passed away when I was young, but uh, had a great relationship with my father and um, knew his stories about Vietnam and and all those things that he kind of uh, impacted me with, with stories and just talking through things. And uh, my dad was very supportive all the way through my, you know, all the way up to my retirement, still supportive of everything I'm doing. But ultimately, you know, he was very excited when I said that I wanted to go to SF in general, but super pumped when I said I was going over to the recce sniper sni side in the SIF. We had had this conversation before about the definition of a sniper. And I think, you know, sniper operations obviously have changed from the time like Carlos Hatchcock was doing uh, sniper operations against the Vietnamese, you know, isolating and targeting single, you know, commanders and doing interdictions. It's kind of, I wouldn't say it's advanced. It's just a different dynamic, right? It's a different battlefield. What is your definition of what a sniper does today. You know, the definition that I look at of a guy that is doing the reconnaissance sniper mission today is one, he has to be a very well-rounded guy, a senior guy, obviously, right, in special operations. Typically, uh, that's the type of guy that you have doing that job. So it's not just shooting. We're not just thinking about like shooting as sniping, right? No, absolutely not. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of technical requirement. You have to be proficient technically with a lot of equipment, whether it's communication. So, you know, you can reach back to your higher headquarters and be able to report, uh, you know, timely and accurate information. Um, you've got to be good with equipment, you know, all the different types of night vision we had and thermals and all these different things that you've got to be proficient on. You know, I would look down the hall and nothing against the guys on the assault side, you know, but they didn't have 
um, nearly the, the amount of equipment or, you know, the tasks to be proficient on. I mean, you talk about the job that we did and then you, you know, you can also throw in military freefall, right? And, uh, you know, for those of you that don't know what, you know, military freefall is, essentially it's the military's version of civilian skydiving, except the military has a great way of making things not as fun as civilian. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you tie all these things into that and it's an, an extremely, uh, you know, time consuming job where you have to be very proficient at a lot of different things. You know, we shot the uh, USASOC sniper comp together, which is the U.S. Army Special Operations Command sniper competition, which is all the snipers from all all over the world. And we saw many different techniques in just long gunning. Right. You know, just the variations between the services, between the Marine Corps. Like the Marines, I think when we shot it, were still dialing elevation. And they were just getting into hold, doing holds. The Navy was coming on board with certain things. But it was cool to see a, the variation of different services, whether it was a government service or military service, and just the different technology that advanced uh, all those processes and just sniping. Right. And not, not even including all the different skill sets that we have to manage, like you said, communications, technical surveillance, you know, reporting, and the list goes on and on. How do you think, you know, kind of transitioning into some of the evolution, because we are snipers around the same time. How do you think the sniper game has changed? And what is the, the, the schoolhouse for sniper? Like what makes you a sniper, especially in uh, special forces? There's two different levels. You've got um, a level two sniper, which typically is taught internal to a unit. And then you've got the actual schoolhouse uh, that's part of uh, what we call the special warfare center. Uh, that makes you a level one sniper. And that course used to be called the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course. Um, and the name has recently changed to the Special Forces Sniper Course. I think when you talk about evolution uh, of the sniper game in general, a lot of it started um, ultimately with, you know, the global war on terrorism, the different areas that we were fighting, obviously becoming more tactically, technically uh, proficient at our jobs, and then actually taking those lessons learned uh, from combat deployments and then bringing those back to the schoolhouse to, you know, to evolve the curriculum that was being taught at the time. And I can remember uh, when I went to that course, it was in 2008. And when I showed up, you know, there was still about, I don't know, probably 30 to 50 percent of that course was still being taught on uh, older techniques. I don't, you know, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a, you know, in my opinion, learning field craft and some of these different things are obviously important. Um, but there was, uh, there were guys coming from the, you know, the commanders and extremist forces and, and different teams and, and showing up as instructors there. And they had really relevant information to pass on to students. And I think, uh, you know, when we went to the course, we were able to see this new information being input into the curriculum and actually changing guys, making them more lethal on the battlefield. Yeah, in between the two of us, I mean, we, we know a lot of guys that are running, not only running the Special Forces sniper course um, for the Army side, but also that that were, you know, teammates with us during operational times and just took all those lessons learned and were able to bring all that stuff and evolve it in real time, you know, like we always say at the speed of war, which is really cool for, you know, a schoolhouse to do. I was always amazed by how other services, other branches seemed uh, it's not they weren't. It's not they were behind. It's that their tactics, techniques weren't 
uh, able to be adapted to kind of the combat that we were seeing. And I always thought that was unique, of uh, especially of the uh, Special Operations Sniper course. That was always an interesting thing to, to me as well is, you know, you've got, uh, you know, obviously the different branches of service and, you know, each branch of service that has its special operations component, you know, guys are attached to certain equipment, you know, they wanted certain things. And um, for a long time, I kind of felt like the, the community was held back a little bit just because it was hard to get everybody together and get them on the same sheet of music to really drive industry to start creating some of the products, you know, that guys are using now. The good news about that, though, is eventually it did happen. And I think um, I feel pretty confident in saying that the guys that we both served with had a direct influence on that. And that, that's a pretty neat part of history, in my opinion, to be a part of. So neat. So neat. So neat. When I just, you know, think about the the aspect of, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, you know, those are things that we typically don't talk about as far as the way we do do what we do. But some of the equipment stuff we could talk about because it's it's available on the commercial end. We see it all the time. And like you said, it takes the industry, the influence of the industry to be able to create the need that the military has and fill that gap. And we, we've been part of that. We've been in the SHOT Show for the military several times. Yeah. I, well, the way I, the kind of the way that I saw that work was obviously the military is generating the need. But uh, the biggest thing was for a long time is that uh, with with everybody coming at industry talking about different things they wanted, industry never felt confident, I think, in going a certain way because they were spending a lot of money on R&D. And there were all these, you know, the good idea fairy, what we call in the military, right, was let loose out of the cage. Uh, but when when all those uh, communities and soft came together and kind of with one voice united uh, about what they wanted, you know, and the the need was there, then industry started to move and make products. Let's talk about some of the equipment then. Let's talk about some of the advancements because each, you know, this is just the sniping aspect, but that's a huge portion or part of our jobs as snipers. Let's start off with glass because I know glass has, you know, between the reticle, the BDCs, the bullet drop compensators, the objective lens, the size, the magnification, on and on. These things have evolved from the time that me and you were starting off in, you know, on a mountain team in Charlie Company yeah. using M24 308, essentially a 308 long action hunting rifle that was just more modernized and uh, optimized for the battlefield. What are some things that you saw with, with glass from the beginning and that you see now that have come out? Yeah, I mean, so one of the big things is just quality of glass in general. I think that a lot of companies uh, that weren't taken very seriously before kind of showed up and uh, they wanted to get a piece of the military action. So they started to ruggedize their equipment more. They started making uh, more quality glass and, you know, kind of where that uh, made a big difference for us was clarity. Right. So, you know, making us even more accurate. Um, and, and being able to observe more effectively with, uh, with clear glass. Obviously, there were a lot of changes like higher magnification power, um, you know, smaller scopes with, you know, more magnification. I mean, you know, the idea is that ounces equal pounds. So anytime that they can give you the same capability uh, in a smaller package, you know, obviously that's, that's something that was helpful to us. So um, because you have a lot of shit that you carry and you know, that makes a difference. What about the reticles? Because I know, you know, both of, both me and you have trained 
at Todd Hodnitz in Canadian Te- Texas at Accuracy First. And this this new reticle, it's not a new reticle, but I mean, hell, it's an old reticle now. But when me and you were looking at units of measure that was equated to distance in our, our optic, our scope, it was measured in minutes of angle, which really limits you and your overall ability to reach out and touch something. And especially uh, in the in the realistic fact that now we're seeing more rapid engagement scenarios. So you have to have quick acquisition to be able to go, hey, there's a guy at 100 meters. Now there's a guy at 200 meters. And I got to be able to snap that that dope or snap that data on my scope and instead of dialing it. I don't have the time to dial it. Um, what are some advancements that you saw in the in the reticle talking about more than likely the you know H37, H59 that uh, Hodnett brought out? Yeah, I mean, you know, this whole the whole evolution of equipment in general just made us that much more lethal on the battlefield. So when we talk about reticles, like you know, like you were saying, Mike, we started off on the mill dot reticle, and then it would soon trans- transition to the H37 Horus reticle you know, the 58, the 59, and then it's it's graduated to even, uh, you know, to different reticles at this point, the Tremor, the Tremor 2. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, more that uh, Todd and, and some of the guys that he's working with are coming out uh, with today. So, but the, but the real reason that that made us more effective is for, you know, exactly the reasons you were talking about, because when you need to acquire a target quickly, you're using a holdover, system vice trying to dial elevation and windage which we didn't learn that way but there were branches of service that were still doing that well when the horse reticle came along you didn't have to do any of that anymore you know um, there's a tie-in of a ballistic calculator right and that's changed that's really the reason right that's changed the game right yeah i mean the the ballistic calculators were huge um, the opportunity to to train on train with the guys that came up with that technology um, I mean, it completely changed the game. You know, we were able to to push shots a lot further. Um, obviously, not getting into the details, all that, but the capability there was just enhanced so greatly that it it just made us that much more effective on the battlefield. And now you get the the, the Kestrels, right? They, they measure uh, altitude density, they measure atmospherics, and then they give you the correction of your dope. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, you're running a Kestrel now. Uh, that is a you know it's a weather um, a weather sensor, and that Kestrel is taking in all this data, um, and essentially where guys in the past had to lay out on a range all day and gather dope. Um, What's you know, dope stand for? So dope stands for data on previous engagement, um, and that was an acronym that was used that that basically you know snipers used back in the day that said hey this you know I'm gathering my dope. Um, and they would record that in a book and and do other things with that data to keep it. So that way, when they went out into the field and they had to use or they had to make a shot, they could refer back to data. Um, obviously, with the advancements in technology, uh, you don't have to do that necessarily anymore. I know there's some guys that still do things the old school way. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, but if you're, you know, the one of the reasons too we change that is you know, with a time sensitive objective or target or deployment, I mean, we could be getting dope in Fayetteville, North Carolina at Fort Bragg, you know, and, and, you know, you get high humidity, reasonable temperatures at sea level, near sea sea level. And then we're going to the mountains of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, for the military application, um, obviously that's a no brainer, right? So uh, expected to go to a lot, a lot of different places and, and short notice, um, so obviously that helped us out a lot, but, uh, 
you know, I think it has an application in the civilian world too. I mean, if you take the long gun game seriously, everybody out there that takes it seriously is using some form of a ballistic calculator. Now, what about overall weapon systems? Because I know when we were on the teams, we had bolt guns. They were five round bolt guns and 308. We shot M118 Alpha and, uh, you know, reasonable 175 grain round and 308 and saw some decent, you know, typically sub minute uh, performance, but we could we weren't capable of doing rapid engagement. Uh, we weren't capable of reaching out past seven, eight, nine hundred meters, depending on the gun. And now you look at the weapon systems we had right before you retired. I mean, you're talking about like almost you know the Remington MSR equivalent, the XM2010. Right. There's a whole bunch of different setups that you know the SR the new SR25, which is the M110 SAS. What's your take on weapon systems? You know, again, along the lines of evolution of equipment, you know, the the fighting in Iraq um, was, you know, there a lot of that was urban. Uh, there was a need for multiple round engagements. Um, you know, for a lot of guys, bolt action rifle wasn't getting it done. Obviously, Knights in the beginning stepped in and filled that gap with the SR-25, which we ran on teams. It was heavy as shit, though. It, it, what, heavy. Yeah, it was it was heavy, and you're running you know twenty round magazines with that weapon system. Quad Picatinny rails, right? Yeah, and um, you know we running lasers and all that stuff on on those rifles. But ultimately, uh, for the urban environment, needed something that was accurate and able to uh, engage more than you know five times. Still, applications for bolt guns, obviously, right? Um, and they're still in the arsenal. So and we stepped up in caliber, right? I mean. I mean, I remember the the Navy SEALs using Mark 13s before I really got my hands on Mark 13s, and it, I think it was a crane. It might have been a crane uh, adaptation, right. which is just a NASPEC Warfare Group uh, adaptation of weapon systems. But the 300 Win Mag, it, that's a go-to, right? I mean, that's that's the standard for for most of special operations. Yeah, in the in the bolt gun category, the 300 is is where it's at, and I think that that still holds true today. I. You know, I know that there was a lot of talk of uh, pushing up the different calibers. The and 338. 338 Lapua. 50 cal. Uh, obviously, the 50 cal, the Barrett was always there for anti-material. But, um, you know, the 300 Win Mag uh, obviously was a much flatter shooting round. And then, obviously, you could get a heck of a lot more distance on it. So Now, now accessories. You had mentioned accessories. We, we're used to running lasers, right? Because, you know, we, we own the night. We crush people. We crush bad guys at night. That's how we do our, our deeds. What are some of the advancements of lasers? Because, I mean, when we started out with SR-25s, we had Pac-2 Alphas on. Right. And that was the shit. You know, it was like it was the hotness because it was infrared. You could see it with your night vision. Right. Now we have these high-powered, high-powered uh, uh, you know, LA-5s, Pac-15s, and now there's better stuff out. Uh, how has that kind of changed? Yeah, I mean – you know, again, along the lines of equipment, it's just making us more effective. You know, those lasers are, uh, they're brighter. Um, you like know, a PID too, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a flood on it. You know, there's just, um, obviously those things are just making us more effective. So now when you look at uh, night vision sites, and we had joked about this before, but I remember, you know, telling you I had shot at rocks with Lee in Afghanistan when we were getting rocketed <laughs> and I was shooting at rocks with a PAS 13, which is, you know, identifies heat in either white or black and it basically looks like looking through a an old tv set in black and white and it's really grainy really shitty and you know that was a decade ago a little, a little over a decade ago and now we're working with universal night sites 
like the 27, the hiss, all these things that have increased our ability to identify targets, but also engage targets at night. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, along the lines of efficiency, just making us or helping us get the job uh, done better. Yeah, I like it. Have you seen any development in newer weapon systems? Like, I, I remember reading an article on some crazy shit that, you know, is reading wins, telling you exactly the shooting solution would put the dot where you needed held and, and you, you know, it almost pulled the trigger for you. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, I did not go to SHOT Show this year. <laughs> the shit show. We yeah, it. the shit show. Um, but I know that, you know, when I was leaving that uh, or getting, you know, when I when I was retiring, that those types of technologies were coming online. And, um, you know, there was a lot of debate inside of the community about, um, you know, guys going all the way back to the fundamentals of marksmanship and, and um, you know, talking about different things and, and the need to still understand the basics uh, before you're using any type of advanced equipment. And I, I do agree with that. I think there's a fundamental level that guys need to understand uh, before they jump into advanced equipment, um, because if that equipment breaks, then they're stuck with, you know, the fundamentals, which... You know, you got to have something to fall back on. We had mentioned about weapon systems, operating systems have changed too. Because now, you know, you had mentioned uh, the SR-25, which is a gas impingement gun. Now, most of the guns that we use, like even during the use of SOC sniper comp, I mean, guys are using like LaRue OBR gas guns, which typically, you know, it's not an army issued gun for the most part. And these these guns are capable of sub, sub minute and they're capable of uh, engaging you know, multiple engagement targets uh, without heating up grossly. I mean, they're they're awesome weapon systems. So, do you think there's a a place uh, for for the bolt gun, or is it going to be outran by the gas gun? I mean, what would you run? I look at things in the sense of, hey, what what mission am I being assigned? And then basically, I look at what tools I have, you know, in my tool chest. For a lack of uh, a better analogy, your tool chest. <laughs> No, but I mean, it, you know, it's it's no different than anything we did in our careers. You know, we were given a mission and then we had uh, different assets that were available to us. And then you pick that equipment. If I was doing something long range in Afghanistan and expected to shoot a thousand, two thousand meters, I'd probably be picking a bolt gun. That's me personally. And if I had to do urban work, then I'd probably be going with a gas gun. I remember, you know, this is probably mid-war. This is like glory years, 06, 07, 08. But I remember me and Kevin, you know, Kevin, Kevin used to be the NCIC, he's a mutual buddy of ours, but used to be the NCIC of SODIC, which is now SFSC. Well, you know, he's advanced a lot of the schoolhouse and he's still on active duty, so we don't say his last name. But me and Kevin were running shorty, I remember we were running shorty M4s, like 10 inch barreled M4s, and then getting to the rooftop and swapping to a 14.5, which... People are like, why would you do that? Why don't you just use a 14.5? Well, when you're building, climbing, and scaling the side of a building mm-hmm. in full kit, you know, like me and Kevin have, have building climbed three-story buildings in Baghdad, like to a balcony, from a balcony to a window, from a windowsill, and then bridge. We've actually bridged uh, buildings before too. I mean, can't you know, using a, a small rung ladder, you know, the little giant ladders, yep. and then walking or bridging or uh, – crawling across ladders across three stories you want something small i mean if i had the option i would almost especially for containment where i was on the outside of the objective trying to contain everything that was coming in and coming out 
I would almost use a pistol and bag out my gun almost every time. And that way, when I got to the rooftop, I knew that was an area I can contain. But fighting along the side of a building, I knew I had pr- plenty of protection from assaulters and everything else. Um, but the kit and the way in which we carried our kit varied depending on the mission. Absolutely. You mentioned free fall stuff. Can you tell us, you know, a lot of people don't know. They think, again, free fall, they think it's a parachutist activity, right? They think, hey, when you guys are jumping, you guys are just skydiving. They see us go to Skydive Arizona and <laughs> Eloy and it's just a shit, you know, it's like a, it's a boondoggle, right? We just have fun. But they don't realize the operational application of what we do. Can you describe, like, for example, a hey-ho, which is, you know, a primary infiltration method that we use? Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea behind a high altitude, high opening is that um, obviously, you know, you're offset, uh, you get out of the aircraft, you open your parachute at a high altitude, and you're able to navigate under canopy uh, to an intended drop zone or the place that obviously you want to land. So um, the amount and level... And that could be like unknown, unmarked, right? Like it doesn't have to be like an actual drop zone. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the idea, I think, at the, the top of the training spectrum is that you have the ability to do that. Um, the amount of time and proficiency that that takes, you know, I can remember doing jump trips prior to deployments where all we were doing was, you know, 20, 30, 40 hay-hos to get proficient at that skill set. Um, and, you know, typically, you know, there's a progression to that where you're, uh, where you're integrating guys and you're starting off during the day, but progressing into the night where, you know, the, the kind of final jump uh, profile looks like, you know, the whole team doing it under night vision, navigating, you know, possibly jumping from 20,000 feet with oxygen and, you know, navigating to that unmarked uh, drop zone. You know, I always thought, people always ask me, like, what's the scariest thing you've ever done in the Army? And that's up there, right? 90-foot fast ropes is, <laughs> is one of them because yeah. <laughs> if you fall from a fast rope when you have a, you know, breaching tools connected to you, full kit, and you're, and you're roping, you'll die. And that's not taken lightly. But free fall operations, you know, at night, O2 jump with oxygen, 15, 20,000 feet, combat equipment, you know, so we call it a wall locker jump, and then jump mastering that and getting everybody out the door and then following that stack and then leading that stack, there's not a lot of room for error. If something goes wrong, yeah. you don't have a lot of contingencies to lean on. It's it's usually goes wrong and it's catastrophic. Right, yeah, so you know, it takes an incredible amount of time to become proficient at that. All right, guys, so transitioning into what do you need to do to optimize your, your battle rifle to get prepared? On the 29th and 30th of April, we're going to be running the Off the Beaten Path course, which is the course that includes mobility, you know, surviving off your platform and also shooting and engaging targets off your off your platform, which when I say platform, I mean vehicle. So it's going to be a really good course. It's a two-day course. We're going to overnight in Fernley, Nevada. Really looking forward to that. We charge per rig, which is kind of cool because you could load up your family in that rig. We don't care. And it's it's an opportunity for you to bring out your gun and learn how to fight from your vehicle. A lot of people ask me like, what's the gun to get? And I always tell them, hey, surgeon, get a surgeon. <laughs> but people can't afford a $7,000 surgeon. And then after you get glass on it, that's like a minimum of two grand. You're talking about like 10 Gs to get a, a sniper rifle that is you know, close to what we shot on active duty. Now, how does somebody take a basic battle rifle. Now, it could be an M4. It could be a, a ranch gun. 
how do they take that and then optimize it for performance? I mean, you know, again, my personal opinion, but I think a big part of that is uh, is one knowing the capability of the weapon system. So doing your background research on, hey, what's the max effective range? Um, you know, the different rates of fire, all all the different technicalities of the gun itself. And then, you know, the next thing you do is you go out and you find somebody that uh, can train you the right way. And I think those two things together, um, you know, no matter what kind of weapon system you have are going to optimize uh, the performance, right? Because you're just, you're getting better educated and then you're able to apply techniques that you're learning. So, yeah, it's good advice. My, my advice would be, one, you got to look at the caliber, obviously, that you're getting into because the caliber really dictates your limitations and your capability. You know, if you're if you have a, for example, a 223 rifle and it's a 10 inch barrel and that's your go to gun because it fits inside your truck, you are limited, obviously, on distance. Um, but you have the, you know, the added benefit of being able to manipulate that weapon system in and around your truck and in close quarters. So one, identify the gun that best fits your needs. If we're talking about long, long guns specifically, I always recommend to people to look at your barrel twist versus your projectile weight. You know, there's an optimized projectile weight for every barrel twist or vice versa that will optimize your overall external ballistics, which is, you know, the path of the round. And we always say, hey, uh, the round shoots flatter. That just means that the trajectory of the round is lower and, and more narrow if scaled. So you, you get less variation during atmospheric conditions, and you also get less deviation during your holds. So you're not having to hold as much. You know, the the optimal round, the, the round that I recommend right now, just based on, you know, talking to people is the either the, the 260 or the 6.5 Creedmoor. Both, uh, you know, it's an excellent caliber of round. It's the flattest round that you can get to do the most damage I would also recommend that if you're looking at your barrel twist, that you do the ballistic research and figure out what your holds are. Because you can have a long gun in the back of your truck. If you don't have the ability to reference in a snap, meaning looking at maybe an index card that's taped to your buttstock, taped to the inside, you know, to the uh, objective lens cap mm -hmm. of your scope, then you don't have the abil ability to react fast and quick. And something that's, you know, we didn't talk about in the modernization that's taking place in special operations is we don't need a spotter. We don't have the time to have a guy dedicated to just spotting for us because we're running 27 power optics with the ability to see, you know, trace, read winds. We're calling our own shots. And instantaneously after we, we send that round, we're, we're, if we're missing, we're, we're sending a follow-up instantaneously. So train yourself to utilize your weapon system on your own. And, and that, will, I think, will greatly improve your abilities to, to optimize that rifle. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great point that Mike brings up is, you know, and it's something we used to say in the military, and it sounds not cliche, but it's like common sense, right? It's like, hey, know your equipment. So, hey, guys, we appreciate you guys tuning in. This is a short, short episode, four-minute short episode. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of information to put out with long guns. We look forward to doing more long gun courses in the future. And we are really pumped up to get more involved in the long gun community this year, especially with bringing Kurt on board. He's the uh, one of the best snipers I know in the community, and he's got a wealth of knowledge, and, and we, we tend to abuse him and use him as much as we can with Philcraft. You got any closing arguments? <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously, uh, appreciate coming on.
Uh, Mike and I have known each other for a long time, so uh, obviously we're having a blast doing work together. Uh, you can find us at our social media at Fieldcraft Survival. Yours is at Soft Survivor. I'm Kurt underscore Team Fieldcraft, and our website uh, we're super pumped about is back up and running, and that's www.fieldcraftsurvival.com. Till next time, stay alert, stay alive. <laughs>